Welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the coach at the University of Houston, author of Peak Performance. And I'm joined by John Marcus, coach of High Performance West. And we have a special guest today. I'll introduce our special guest, good friend uh, and longtime competitor. Fun fact, Steve, myself, and this young man all competed against each other at Club Cross Country way back when, I think, what, 2006? And finished right together as a pack. I'm speaking of none other than Coach Michael Smith from the NAU Lumberjacks, home of the defending national champions in the NCAA men's cross country and the currently ranked number one team in the nation. He has a litany of other accolades to his um, resume, but we won't get into that because more importantly, we want to understand the man behind the achievements. Mike, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me, John and Steve. Excited to be here. It's funny you mentioned that uh, 11 years ago, finishing side by side, the three of us, it was a premonition to moments like this that were uh, to come. Uh, I, well, all I want to know is who, who finished first out of us three. I don't even remember. I don't, I don't either. This Jeez, all right. Don't make me look this up, okay? <laughs> it's going to take too long to look up. We got to give the people what they want. That's why we're on the podcast. So, Big Mike. Hopping into it real quick. First question. Currently working with and overseeing the defending national champions. However, this is not your first time ever overtaking a program as the director of it with a defending national champions. You did that at Georgetown when Chris Millenberg departed for Stanford. You took over the women's defending cross-country national team champion. And now, same deal here at NAU. Take us through the similarities or differences in overtaking the reins of a national championship caliber cross country team. Yeah, that's something I've thought about. Uh, I thought about a bunch and, and I, um, it's, it's truly, you know, man, a lot of people in their careers, you wouldn't, they wouldn't find themselves in this situation even one time. And here, this is twice in five years. Um, right. I'm, I'm taking over a program that is, uh, previously won a national championship just, uh, yeah, the year before. Um, I think that uh, that experience in 2012 is, is um, has taught me a lot and really informed this experience. I I think if I could go back to that guy in 2012, I would have made it way less about taking over a national championship team. And I think framing it in that way really, um, yeah, put a coach in a position of more like defense or running to not lose versus um, – yeah, really um, making it what it is, which is just a, a season and a race and a and a group of and a group of athletes. So I, um, I I'm, I'm thankful for that experience at Georgetown um, with that women's group, and um, I think that does inform this experience here at NAU, and um, maybe not focusing so much on the fact what happened a year ago and and that win, and really putting the the focus on process versus outcome. So if I'm understanding right, you were a little bit a younger incarnation of yourself was caught up more in the end result, the outcome. And now this older, wiser version of you is a little bit more focused on the day to day, being a hedgehog rather than a fox, correct? <laughs> yeah, the and, and I think you can you can logically and rationally say that all you want, that hey, we're 
you know, that's not going to be a focus. Um, I think that comes across in all sports, but it's really hard to, it's really hard to not, to not do that. It's really hard to, you know, you feel like you don't want to let people down and you feel like it's on you. And man, if I could have gone, if I could go back and like shake that guy when he first got into college coaching and especially like your first year somewhere, you know, you're, you're the time it takes to really learn athletes and stuff. I would have just, I would have gone way easier on myself. I think when it, when it came to that. And, um, yeah, I, that was a special group of athletes at Georgetown. I think of them a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that experience because here it's, Really, the only time I get asked about defending a national championship, it's someone from outside of our circle. It's not really that's not really the dialogue we have internally here at, at NAU, and um, it's really when I I get to a meeting or I get on a podcast and uh, yeah, answer something like that because that's really not the way we frame it. And and it's not to say that we're not focused on the NCAA meet or trying to win a national title. By all means, we are. Um, it's more that framing of defense framing of I have uh, something to lose uh, versus something to gain. Right. So what is the vocabulary? Put a pin in the dialogue that you and the guys on the team, uh, the men of NAU are currently having. What are the key vocab words that you use day in and day out? The other, way, the other, uh, the other day I used uh, street fight, uh, <laughs> which is, um, yeah, I, I, this is, this is going to be, uh, this is maybe a little bit off for you, but I, I'm, I'm very interested in not just in sport, but in all human structures, what happens when people are given power and how it changes people, the fear of losing something. It's, uh, it's very much a theme of, uh, of Star Wars, I'll tell you. But uh, this, how it changes someone, the fear of losing, the fear of – and, and, and um, there's a really brilliant line from old Master Yoda. He says uh, – to let go of everything you fear to lose. And so actually your freedom and your liberation is in um, letting go of a fear of losing this meet. It's not to say you don't want to, to be NCAA champions, but releasing yourself um, from this, this fear of, of losing. And so some of the language we use is, um, yeah, running to win, running to running to gain something, running to capture something, running, uh, running to race, running to, you know, we, we talk about the race within the race, winning individual battles. We framed Wisconsin that way. This thing is going to break up to, um, you know, some of our guys, the, the, the race within the race, trying to win those individual street fights. And um, that, the, that's the language we use versus maybe um, language around, around something to lose. So currently, how do you and the men of NAU cross-country choose to collectively appraise progress of, quote, the process, end quote? I think that's a great question. Uh, yeah, the um, I, I, again, something that's easy to say and maybe harder to do. You know, you hear coaches talk a lot about um, process and outcome. It's it's you know both you guys coach and 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 you know that that is uh, it's very easy to get caught up in the outcome. The place I get caught up in the outcome the most is I'm talking about the the act of racing, the process of racing, and then I'll be addressing the team and. I'll slip and I'll, I'll be rewarding time. I'll be rewarding mm. outcome. And, and um, I, I try to be really cautious of that. I, the, the outcomes are reached from process. Um, right. So what I, does the process look like? Can you, you know, articulate yeah. as concisely as possible? For What do you guys choose to say, okay, 
this is the process, this is the process, all this is junk, it's not. Yep. Yeah, each day it's it's asking ourselves what is what needs to be done today? What's what you know, what's the task today? What's the best thing I can do for my team today? And you can break that even down to little moments in a day. What's you know, um, how could I frame my afternoon so I could, uh, you know, so I can get the rest that I need? Um, how could I frame my schoolwork so I'm, you know, caught up before we hit the road and travel? Um, we we break down, you know, process even, you know, um, into our drills of can we do, can we can we find the postures in an A skip that like we were doing this for the first time we were learning it versus uh, the 1,000th time. Um, we said that the other day, this is the time in the season where there's been repetition, where, you know, hey, we're, we're going through, you know, this is the 100th day we're showing up at the weight room. Can we act like it's the excitement of the first day? Those are all things that add up to what we hope uh, are those outcomes that we want to achieve. So, um, you know, it, it's really breaking down what we're doing to the day-to-day, focusing on what we can control, not, not worrying about what's not in our control, um, yeah. So I asked the guys, that's what's the, what's the job to do today? What's the most important thing today? And they're, they're pretty good at answering that. How does, thank you, Mike. How, and this is my last question. I've been shooting off at you, uh, you know, like a machine gun here. I'll let Steve go next. Um, how does that partnership between you and the men on the team look, you know, what I'm not going to say coaching style or philosophy, but how does that look? If I come to practice for a week and I observe you interacting and interfacing with the men on the team, let's say now, you know, a month out from nationals, but before that you have the hurdle of regionals and then you have the, you know, reality of conference in front of you, you know, again, walk us through a little bit of what that looks like. Yeah. I think you'll notice a couple of things. Um, in, in, uh, in Steve's book, science of running, he writes about, uh, Actually, a, a physical, tangible aspect of training we call muscle tension, and how you balance uh, muscle tension by you know maybe you do something neuromuscular or something that hits the CNS. I think it's a great metaphor. It's a great analogy also for the mental and emotional. And I don't know if there's a there's a, maybe a phrasing for that, but balancing um, the tension that's often found in energy. So I think if you came to my practice, you would note that I'm a I'm, I'm an observer and I'm watching that tension. I'm an observer of the, the energy of the group and I'm balancing that. So sometimes it's trying to really bring them up and sometimes it's trying to bring them down. Um, if that makes sense metaphorically for, um, you know, how you might look at that as actually a, a, a piece of training. Um, I oh, think it that makes sense. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, interrupt real quick. I call it dancing with the tension. The tension is a compass. So yeah, you're balancing, sure. but you're, yeah. it's a dance. And in a dance, there's an exchange, there's a back and a forth, there's a this and that. And yeah, I mean, so that's my offering is maybe, you know, thinking dance instead of balance. Right. We, uh, I, I, yeah, we, I'll say this because it was mentioned in an interview, so people know this, but, um, you know, the night before Wisconsin, just kind of observing the tension, I took them after dinner, I took them to play laser tag. Um, and, People would be like, I mean, I, so that, again, the guy five years ago, holy shit, hell, I'm, excuse me. <laughs> no, so, okay, I, this is, this is, this is our, an R-rated pod. <laughs> and no, you know, I, I never would have done that. And it sounds like this, you know, irres- you know, this irresponsible, like, hey, we're, we're just out having fun at this meet. That was a calculated observation of just making sure that we're loose, making sure that we're relaxed, making sure that we're not 
run too much. I we they had a, a great race the next day. Um, they they had a blast playing. You know, forty minutes of laser tag the night before, shooting each other in the head with lasers. I got shot a bunch of times, but it was again a calculated move on balancing that tension. So I think if you came to a a practice of ours, you would notice that um, that there's a a dance with the energy, um, and then yeah, you would notice that we are um, very focused on that that task at hand, that moment at hand, and that's um, you know you come to a practice and we're um, whatever we're doing right in that moment, that's our that's our moment for process right there. And again, it's the sum of a thousand moments like that that mm. arrive somewhere. Well, thank you. You speak to my soul as a philosopher. I've been on machine gun approach here. So I'm going to let the scientist uh, unpack some questions um, I might have. Just, just, just so you guys know, I'd like you guys to know that it was uh, John Marcus who won the battle. He was, oh. He, he was, <laughs> he was 20, listen to this. John Marcus, 27th. Mike Smith, 28th. Steve Magnus, 29th. We were all within a second and a half. A second and a half. I'll kick y'all. That's probably what happened somehow. Marcus, did you come from behind? You sneak up on us? <laughs> oh, well, yes. Sneak attack, baby. That, that had to be what happened. We should one day just like relive that like moment in time. Like each of us write a little piece and then be like, here's how that race was, what I remember. I love it. I love so it. The, there you go. It, it was meant to be. Um, and the same. And the same. There you go. So let, let's take us to that, that laser tag decision, which I think is uh, brilliant and very interesting. Um, how do you deal with the, the individual nature of that? Because, you know, you have some distance runners who are that OCD type who like, oh, my gosh, I'm not in bed sitting in my room doing nothing for three days before the race and all of that stuff. Like, how do you how do you get those types that we all inherit to buy into this? Like, hey, let's just tension tie. Let's go chill out and play laser tag before a big meet. Yeah, you know the. Uh, I think that's a that's a really good question. Oh, you know, like you all know with with your groups, everything in training, it's like it's like teaching in a classroom. You know, the lesson is right for ten of the students. It's too hard for five of them, and it's too easy for another five. You know, I think any time that you're prescribing something for thirty people, you know. If it's the same thing for all 30, someone's probably getting not getting what they need. And I think the same goes with that that energy. I think the energy is often balanced quite individually. I do it, um, you know, I uh, I might walk up to someone and be really light and loose um, in a, uh, you know, in one interaction, turn my back and face another athlete and have a totally different demeanor. And so that's constantly uh, – uh, yeah, constantly finding that fluidity and, and adapting in the those interactions. When you have a whole group assignment like that, and, and for some people that's for some people laser tags are like, oh man, this is no big deal. For someone else, that's a really kind of a, a nerve wracking thing. This is their usual pre race. They want to be uh, like you said, maybe you know um, with headphones on in bed, something like that. Um, I think you have to really read your group and make sure that cost is not too high for the people that are most stepping out of their bounds. Um, I think in all elements of psychology, when it comes to control, uh, you know, we've, we've labeled the behavior terrifying or scary, uh, anxiety ridden, um, when, when often that's the thought associated with it and it's not actually 
the source of it. And so when you're asking someone to reframe their thinking, the first step is to, is to have them do something that's outside of their normal boundaries. And then the next moment's really crucial. Have them sit in that moment, wait, and say, okay, wait a second. This bad thing I thought was going to happen, nothing happened, right? And so it's a, you have to kind of hold their hand through that. And when they see that nothing bad happens, they realize that's just a thought. And so um, you begin to unpack and, and remove the power of the thought. And so I think with our uh, maybe more type A athletes that think I need this rigid control, I need this really uh, controlled environment uh, pre-race, they, uh, the key there is letting them know that that's actually not what they need, but those are thoughts. And so um, I think that's really great opportunity for coaches to uh, disempower the, those thoughts. So, so you spend a lot of time on this talking about like the power and dynamics of it all, right? I'm right. interested to hear from your perspective, like what is the coach athlete power dynamics in your group and like how do you, how have you shaped that? I think a lot of athletes arrive to where we are and as uh, college coaches, um, having been uh, directed or told, so a model which would put the coach in the driver's seat, the athlete in the passenger seat. And I think college, uh, I think good coaching is the coach is in the passenger seat and the athlete is in the driver's seat. The coach is the whisper of the GPS. Turn left, slow down. You have a hazard ahead. Um, that's good coaching. And, and, it's, and the athlete's actually driving. So that's what I try to model. I, I um I will often ask athletes, what do you think you need? What does it feel like in your body? What, what, what's, what does it feel like you need next? And um, when there's a lot of trust in the relationship, I think the athlete can hear that and not think, well, the coach doesn't – it's not that the coach doesn't know what to do right now. Uh, the coach is really just interested in my input. And I think really insecure coach-athlete relationships, it's just a top-down model. Uh, this is the formula. This is what you do. This, this worked for my guy. Three years ago, this is what you have to do right now. And, uh, and really secure, healthy, fluid coach after relationships is more lateral dialogue, more lateral exchange of power. And I, I, um, I really try to – I think sometimes when you have freshmen, they look at you crazy the first time you, you do that. And then um, – but really as, as athletes progress uh, and they move forward, it's such a partnership. And, um, and they know that they have the ability to say, you know what, I – Hey, I feel like I really need a, you know, just some more, some more aerobic stuff. I had a, a female athlete tell me the other day, you know, I, I, I really feel like a workout like this could help me right now. Man, it, you know, an insecure coach, I think, would hear that input from an athlete and say, oh, I can't have the kids telling me what to do. I can't. <laughs> Instead, it's like, no, that's the most valuable feedback we have, right? So Yes. Yes, 100%. I mean, I think it's. The athletes know their body, right? Especially as, as they've uh, gotten to do that. And, and, Coaches have to understand that that's feedback for us as well. My my question on this is, A, when you first got into coaching, did you have the security to do that? To actually mm. listen to an athlete who's telling you, hey, I need to do this or I should do that. And if not, how do you build that security as a coach? I was, uh, I was at Altus well, a couple years ago and I was watching uh, Dan Path coach a pole vault session. Um, I believe the athlete was Steve Lewis, one of the uh, British athletes in the pole vault. And um, 
it was interesting because Dan's Dan's questioning was all you know. That would would jump and kind of walk over to Dan, and Dan wouldn't tell him. Dan would ask him, "Like, what'd mm-hmm. you feel? What'd you? What went wrong?" It, or he'd say, "What was the virus?" Uh, and and asking the athlete to uh, to recite back. And, and at first, it looks like the athlete knows more. And then you're like, "That's a damn pat." Uh, <laughs> But really, it's just this. It's it's so empowering. Imagine a lot. And, and Dan turned to me and said, "I've been working with this guy eight years. I he could see all these things. He's asking the athlete to say it back." When I started coaching, I think I, um, um, I had not. I I jumped into Division One coaching, having not been a college coach, and I think um, the insecurity in myself was compensated for with more control. So the control is really elaborate race plans you know the race plans hey sorry to all the people i coached in 2012 the race plans uh when i started were like at the 252 meter mark <laughs> you're gonna you know, and and um and just you know there's such elaborate you know the training was so elaborate and it, it, it really when i look back on that it's you're compensating for feeling um you know, for this fear of maybe, you know, that you, that you don't know what you're doing or something like that. And I think as you get more and more secure, it's crazy the simplicity of some of these things. Like, would you think that more advanced coaching, more advanced coaching might be less of a race plan, right? Less of a, but it's, it's amazing how that works. So I think, uh, when I look back on this progression, it's really, um, empowering them more, getting out of their damn way. Like, <laughs> Coaches, get out of their way. <laughs> you know, like get out of their way. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that's just been a progression and I hope keeps keeps continuing. I laugh and Steve laughs because it was exactly the same, you know, for us. Perfect. I mean, I can remember these very detailed training plans and race plans, like filling their head with all this junk of tasks to do at certain points in a race and having this pre-programmed, orchestrated curriculum that they had to conform to no matter what so it's really refreshing to hear someone else say that uh, who's coaching at a very high level and that introspection of less is indeed more but it's simplicity does not mean lack of sophistication it's the ability to ignore all the signals because there's a lot of noise out there and so we're ignoring all the noise that is not an effective signal and more and more, the masters or you know mentors who have been doing this for many years, you know Dan Path, you know Vern Gambetta, I mean other ones that I've I've incurred, Rob Connor, they know how to hone in on the essential signal that has the most impact. And I think that's where a young coach, at least for me, you lack you you lack not experience or not knowledge and not passion and not good intention. But you lack the experience. You know, and the fact is, you said earlier, having coached that women's Georgetown team and inheriting that national championship team made you better because of your failures and learning from those failures then for now what you focus on today with your current crop of inherited national championship team is really refreshing. So thank you. And, and I think, you know, what's interesting because it's like that in all sports, right? We can get in running and be like, ah, running's, you know, we make it more complex than it is, right? But this summer I was sitting down, I got to sit down and um, 
chat with Eddie Jones, who's the head rugby coach for England. And he was telling me, he's like, yeah, my first couple jobs, I failed miserably because like I came up with these detailed like game plans and everything was organized and everything was mapped out. And he's like, now, in, in the last two jobs, he's been really successful. And he says, our game plans consist of max three things that I tell the athletes and that's it. Like, and that's for rugby, like a very complex, dynamic, on the move sport um, that you would sit there and think, like, oh, we need to have all these pieces exactly in place and everybody doing the same thing. But he's sitting there telling me, like, no, it's got to be simple so it's usable. And if it's not, like, we're going the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, oh, geez, I, um, I had a conversation with, um, an athlete that I that I ran with in college, and we were kind of reflecting on um, some of our college racing. And he was noting that man in high school, he's like, man, in high school I didn't have race plans. I just like I just went on race. I just ran, I ran hard and raced, right? And uh, I thought it was such a astute comment, like the simplicity, right? And that it's it's not uh, that it's sometimes the most the most sophisticated is actually the most the most simple. And I think mm-hmm. in, in the in the point of Eddie Jones. We have to uh, recognize the power of what we're telling them. So that elaborate race plan, what I found in my experience was I've got an athlete, instead of listening to their instruments, listening to their instincts, responding to the pack, to their competitors, to the pace, reading the scenario, they're running around the track or the cross-country course reciting this plan told to them in the hotel the day before about I'm supposed to be here. And the second it's not in that plan – we got these red sirens. The, you know, the coach is going to be mad. It was supposed to be this way. So we have to recognize the power of what they're telling them. I would rather leave that space blank and say, you are ready for anything that is thrown at you. Fast, slow, left, right, whatever. You got this. Uh, versus creating this something that's going to fill their head. It's not a passive thing. It's not a neutral thing. Whatever that fills that space um, man, especially for the college athletes, they're going to be repeating that over and over. The well, second it looked like that, we got something wrong happening. Well, it creates those freakout moments, right? It's like, especially at the large races where they're like, if you have athletes who get this idea in their head of, I need to be at this place at the mile or I need to get out in this, this spot, um, what happens is, like you said, the moment that doesn't happen, it, they freak out in their head. And right. it, it, and once you freak out, we call it like the downward, downward spiral, right? The mm-hmm. thoughts go negative. All this stuff goes negative. All the things go like, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So they get really tight and you start seeing them force it while they're running. And all of a sudden they're making dumb moves or wasting energy instead of being calm and understanding that like, here's the scenario I'm at in this moment. And like, how do I deal with this? With an elaborate race plan, you automatically, you automatically prohibit a flow state. Automatically. Because if I have to go through this checklist of things to do at certain points, and I have to be a good, compliant athlete, otherwise coach is going to be mad at me. Or I have to run the first mile in 510. I have to run the second mile in 5 flat. And I don't hit that target, then then you lose all hope because your progress has automatically been stunned or stunt or diminished. So now, because you're not progressing in a race, you can't be in a flow state. And I think what you're saying, Mike, is like, you know, your uh, Pierre, when he was in high school, he played. He showed up and he played. Yes. And we know when you play, 
you're in a flow state. Time melts away. You're ah. here in the moment, completely yes. present. And that's really what we're trying to do as coaches with the elaborate race plans, give people confidence that they're capable of doing this and this and this. But we need to encourage the flow state. That is the most important thing I think I've learned personally, not to hijack this interview, in my last you know, 10, 15 years of competing and coaching and hearing from other people is how do you encourage the flow state from happening? And you're right, Mike. It's an Eastern philosophy. Less is more. It's very hard. Don't, don't get us wrong. It's very hard work. It's a lot of work and effort to edit and edit and edit away all the junk. There's so much we could tell. There's so much feedback we could give. There's so much we could set them up for. But to understand as a coach what signal is going to be the clearest, what signal is going to communicate the most, what cue, it's very, very few, but it's so potent what you're saying. The impact is so deep. It, you know, boom, snaps them into that flow state. And I do want to put a pen in a word you said. You said ready, and I take contention with that. I never think anyone's ready. I think they can be prepared. But you're never ready to buy your first house. You're never ready to get married. You're never ready to repeat as national champions. You're never ready to break four in the mile. Because being ready implies you've already done it, you know what to do, it's you know status quo. Being prepared, though, means you're as prepared as you can be. And then you stand on this precipice of, all right, this is the moment. Don't blink. Take the leap, the leap of faith, because I know I'm prepared and I'm going to fly. And I think that, too, is where we're trying to get every athlete to understand you will never be ready, but you can be damn well prepared. And your job, my job as coach is to help in concert prepare you, aid your discovery so that when that moment comes and you stand on the ledge, you leap, you take mm. the risk, you mm. go for it. I think that's I think that is well said. How would you say, John, for young coaches or people beginning that, you know, you're that, hey, and, and it's easy to slip into that uh, complex, elaborate uh, queuing or race plans or training, um, how can they? Where does that? Where, where does that good intention? Where can that be poured into? Where does that that knowledge or desire or drive or all the all the work they're willing to do? And they often are, I guess, uh, pointing that in the wrong place or not a not helpful place for the athlete. Where do they pour that? Where do they point that? Be a sponge. Your first 10 years, be a sponge. Read, converse, go to as many clinics, find as many mentors. Pete, like you said an aha moment was for you watching Dan Path, who has a bellworth of credentials and expertise, going having a dialogue and asking questions. That's invaluable. You need to see masters of craft practicing away from the competition venue in the preparation forum. That's where you have to go. I was fortunate enough to see, you know, Jerry Schumacher and Alberto Salazar, you know, two people who are doing it at a high level, you know, with world-class athletes, front and center. I mean, amazing. And then Rob Conner at University of Portland, he taught me a lot too. Seeing them on the day-to-day, -day, that taught me so much. That was really the acceleration of my uh, education as a coach, was getting out from you know, my small world view as a high school or small, you know, NAIA coach my first couple of years, and then being able to be with masters of craft. Not to say, 
you know, that the only Masters Craft or Pro coaches are NCAA one or NCAA Division one coaches. No, no, no. They exist all over, but you have to find them. You have to take the initiative to go out. And then two, I don't think it's part of the process. You you have to be, you know, very elaborate. You have to sort through all the knowledge and you have to have the experience of, man, I had this five page race plan for this athlete and it didn't work. Yeah. And then that, that failure forces you to reflect. That reflection part is the other component. If you're not learning from the failures, if you're not learning, I put it, I poured on my heart and soul with the best intent to help this athlete win the state title, to help them win the conference meet, to help them do, 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 and get them prepared. Oh, crap, they got eighth. Why? Huh. That reflection, if you don't have that ingrained, I mean, or if you don't practice that, you, it's like I always tell people, there's no such thing as injury prevention. You can't do it. Impossible. I do not care if someone tells you you're going to prevent injuries. They're a charlatan. Walk away. We can minimize the risk of injury. Wow. We can have injury minimization. But it's just like any black swan event. And an injury is a black swan. You don't say, all right, and on the fifth day of October, I'm going to get hurt. It's like a hurricane. They just show up, and you got to deal with it. Deal with the symptoms. Don't let them progress. But minimize it, right? Sure. Same deal here is – as a coach, you need to fail, 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 but you keep playing the infinite game, which is you keep coaching and you get better through reflection. So be a sponge. I Read as much as you can. The greats, the everything and anything on coaching, you know, just be a sponge. And then two, the most important thing, write it down. And if you don't write it down, it's just something that exists for a half second. It's a mayfly. It's a mayfly of a thought. But if you write it down, you're planting a seed. And then that seed grows into this big oak tree with strong roots. And as you know, the wise sage, Mr. Miyagi, says, once roots strong, tree choose where to grow, how to grow. Uh-huh. Same, with, same with you. But the roots need to be strong. And so that's self-education, continuous, every day. I have notes and notes and notes, journals and journals and journals, years and years and years, writing things down, listening to podcasts, going to coaches' clinics reading articles online, watching interviews, um, you know, books, interactions with athletes. If you don't write it down, oh, you're doing yourself and everyone you're working with a disservice and you're actually being more harmful than helpful. I'd also add that I think that your athletes will tell you more than anybody else, right? And every athlete is an opportunity to learn and discover something new. And I think often what happens is when we deal with like these elaborate race plans and we keep repeating these same mistakes is we're not taking that feedback from the athletes, right? Mm -hmm. If you sit down and you talk and you have a conversation after emotional stuff of post-race has gone away and you just sit there and you say, all right, walk me through that, right? Walk me through your race and not just don't walk me through the splits, right? Walk me through what you were thinking, what the emotions were, like where those those seeds of doubts popped into it, and then explore why they did. And like I remember early on as a coach, like that's probably where the aha moment came for me on this these race plans things as I was talking with athletes. And over and over again, I came to this point of like, oh, like the pre-race ex- expectation is what was getting in this athlete's way. Because they'd be like, you know, I thought I'd get to a half mile in this mile race and be at this time and feel this way. 
but I got here and I I was at this time and felt this way. So I, you know, it, I started going down that down spiral and you start realizing that expectations and like their, how they saw the race, uh, uh, unplaying was actually the problem. And if we could shift those and give people the ability to, um, work within their own ability in their landscapes, like we're in a much better place. And I think that reflection part needs to be in multiple domains, right? For me, it's sitting down at the end of the day of a meet and saying, okay, what did I learn, right? What can I take away? And then on the flip side, it's um, coming back and asking the athletes what they took away. Yeah, Yeah, so I had a question. Just one last thing, Steve. I think um, if I had to pinpoint the number one thing that's causing that lack of or that uh, um, that barrier, the 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 barrier to flow state, or that freak out moment, expectation. I painted a picture. It's going to be this way, and then it wasn't that way. I lose it. So one of the biggest things I think coaching is just like we've got to be really careful what pictures we're painting for them. You know, um, like painting this picture that is unrealistic. Uh, you know, is maybe worse. We're setting them up. Yes, they're the one doing the panicking, but are we setting them up for that? Right. I think expectation is good, but it's a it's like fire. You have to harness it, and it has to be used to your advantage and not to your detriment. So most people default to anxious expectation. Anxious expectation is the killer of joy. Ooh. I love that. You know, yeah. And the reality is confident expectation, like I'm going to go do this. This is going to be fun. I'm going to play. I'm going to be in a flow state. I'm going to see what happens. This might work, and this also might not work, and that's okay. Now, that that is gold, and that's really difficult to get to move away from the default, which is the lizard brain, right, which is our reptilian brain, which is anxious expectation to the, you know, more enlightened, more evolved you know, upper uh, new brain that we have, our big brain that makes us who we are and allows those states to happen. But again, you have to move yourself and you have to do the hard self work. You have to practice. You have to do everything to get you there. So, yeah. 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 I mean, even if you look at, I'll bring some science in here. Um, if you look at uh, Chuck sent me high's research on flow, right? Mm-hmm. It, he's found that there's that like narrow band that gives us the best shot of getting in flow. And it's yeah. that, that expectation that is like, or that challenge that is just maybe just beyond our, our reach, right? If it's too easy, like we're not going to be attentive enough to get into flow. If it's too hard, our brain's just going to shut down and be like, yeah, this, like, this is never going to happen. Like, why are we wasting resources? So it's that like narrow band where expectations and, and that matter have to be, you know, or, or the challenge has to be high enough, but not so far beyond our difficulty that we're just going to shut off. Right. It's the Goylocks effects. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Arousal is just right. The right arousal. But most people are either too cold or too hot. So it's figuring that out. And that, I mean, we can go on and on and on about that, but, and how different methods we use. But Mike, there's a really important question I want to ask you. Culture. Everyone talks about it. But to you, what does it look like? Yeah, um... I can't tell you how much I, 
how much I would emphasize uh, to coaches that are working with teams uh, how important it is um, to create belonging, and that is often happening with, uh, yeah, the, the some of the most crucial people may not be your top seven. Um, I knew we were going to have a really great race in Wisconsin when the open race, the non-championship race, which occurred two hours before, we put three guys in it, and those three guys competed just mm. Lost three for three, just raced like hell. They were, you know, they didn't win, you know, they're, they're, you know, they, but they were back there just scrapping. I said, right then, three for three, I was like, watch, we're, we are about to, I knew right then that what was going to happen in the next race. And what it tells me is, it tells me where we're at as a group. It tells me what we're thinking. It tells me where, where, where the pulse is. If I have a guy scrapping for, I'm going to be 31st instead of 32nd in the open race, we're going to have a good day. Um, and so the number 19 guy, the number 20 guy, man, those are really, really important. I'm, fo- I'm as focused on, on those guys right now trying to win this thing as, as my top seven um, because they give me great gauges on where we are as a group. If we're only worrying when – when it comes to culture, and I'm not saying the time, energy is maybe – has to be evenly distributed. You know, I've got guys on my team that are some of the best runners in the country. Uh I no no bones about it. They're gonna probably have more of my face to face time, or, or you know, than maybe uh, you know a freshman walk on. That's not what I mean. I mean the creating the sense of belonging. Um, that's really important. Uh, I've got a book in my office. It's called Tribe, Sebastian Junger. But it's uh, oh yeah, we've read it. It's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and in the intro, uh, I'm just gonna give you one. One little piece of this that really uh, says a lot about how I look at culture. Um, This book is about why that sentiment is such a rare and precious thing in modern society and how the lack of it has affected us all. It's about what we can learn from tribal societies about loyalty and belonging and the eternal human quest for meaning. It's about why for many people war feels better than peace and hardship can turn out to be a great blessing. And disasters are sometimes remembered more fondly than weddings or tropical vacations. Here's the line. Ready? Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. The number one thing in culture in our group, everyone must know that they have a part. They must feel they have a part. When they walk in the locker room, I have a job. I am important to this team. I have a role. There is something I provide that no one else can provide. I am necessary, right? And when you have people racing like that, I am necessary, uh, you're talking that. That's how I think you access what is beyond you. And great teams, uh, you'll hear often described, I can do something as a part of something for others, something, you know, more than I could pull out of myself if I was by myself. And I think that begins with making them feel necessary. So practically, how do you explicitly attempt to do that currently in this day and age, in this season? What are some of the practical methods you've employed to make that feeling of belonging and necessity a reality for every one of your troops? 
Yeah. So we label what contribution is. So contribution isn't just, you know what, Tyler Day ran a fast race. He contributed to the team. Congratulations, Tyler. Okay, here's practice today. Contribution is recognizing uh, the energy, the attitude um, that each of us brings. Um, contribution is, um, you know, we recognizing contribution and, yes, yeah, certainly uh, resilience, um, uh, some of these intangible things that uh, really make our make our group what it is. Uh, it's recognizing, hey, contribution might be, you know, Matt Baxter is one of our best runners. Matt Baxter looks out for the freshman that's off on his own. He warms up with the guy having a hard day. Um, we have to recognize those things, reward those things. Um, and then I think when we start to see that, wait a second, I can contribute. Hey, I might not be, I might not be able to score today, but I can contribute in the attitude I bring. I can contribute by showing uh, my teammates what I can overcome. I can contribute uh, by you know the energy I bring to a group. So I think it's recognizing those things, rewarding those things, pointing those things out each day. Um, we got, you know, we got a cross country team made up of. We got some survivors in there. We got some people that have been through some stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? We had a, you know, we had a, we had a workout down in Sedona uh, a couple weeks ago, and in the training logs, which they fill out after, I had a guy say, "I was having a tough day, but I looked over and I saw my teammate that was having he's having this he's got this cramping diaphragm thing. He can run through it, but it's totally uncomfortable. It's just like this one of these right. just nagging things." He said, "Man, I knew that I knew that my teammate had this thing, and and so I knew I could push on." I mean, that's that to me, that's like, how do you label that contribution? That's not, if we're not just talking about PRs, we're talking about all these things. So when they know that's in their power, now I got 20 guys that are like, okay, well, seven will race, five will score, but damn, I'm important. Damn, I'm yeah. important. So how do you call that out? Do you call it out immediately when you see it? Do you call it on a team yeah. meeting? Do you call it on a debrief? What does that look like? Yeah, all of the above. And I think, uh, okay. Um, so you're constantly same. just curating and calling out, be like, yes, yep. this is culture. Yes, yep. saw this, you did this, this contributes, yes, yes, yes. Yep, and, and it's just, um, I worked with the, before I was in college coaching, I worked with the Aussie rules football teams. Okay, it's probably similar, Steve, to like uh, English rugby, just uh, um, it's a really interesting group dynamic, but there is this constant chatter, this constant buzz. They have nicknames for each other, they're yelling at each other, they're hollering at each other, but there's a sound to it. In our group, when I hear internally, I hear uh, encouragement. I'll write that out. I heard that. I heard that. Um, and when I say I heard that, it's letting them know, yes, yes, that's that's what we want. That's the chatter we want. That's what we, right? So um, I had someone say in the logs, uh, I warmed down. Like this, this happened the other day. I said, did I warmed I picked I picked a teammate that I hadn't talked to today and I warmed down with him because I think that's important to be a good teammate. I cut that from the logs, I put it in 24 point bold italics and I emailed it out to the whole team. Like that's that read it boom. So they know all the time um, by working with me, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months. They know that I'm going crazy about these things, right? And so then it's like it's it's basic, you know, it's basic. I learned this teaching elementary school. It's like if I start screaming and dancing when someone does their homework all of a sudden it's like man we i want this reaction i want this affirmation right so i just freak the hell out over some of these things when it comes to culture and they know you know and they start doing that on their own Whew. preach thank you huh 
Uh, Well, we've been asking a lot of theoretical stuff. I mean, practical. Let's talk about nuts and bolts of actual preparation of the physical. So physique de preparation. 7,000 feet flagstaff. Yeah, I want to tell you. Oh, oh, sure. No, no, no. If I'm just queuing it up, man, hit, hit, swing away. This is. I don't want. To, this could be. Uh, I'm here. Uh, our competitors can use this against us. But let me tell you what we do for the next few weeks in the season. It was really interesting. We went out to the Louisville course uh, where the championships are held. Um, we went out on September 30th. Okay, so these guys, most of these guys, stayed in flag in the summer to run at 7,000 feet. Um, highly aerobic. So we hadn't done, we'd done a little bit of neuromuscular work on grass, but we had done, uh, we had done no VO2 work. We had done nothing that was actually aerobic power, you know, so in Flagstaff, you know, for these guys, we had done nothing in the, in the, you know, 440s, um, right. you know, we hadn't touched anything like that. And so I tell them ahead of time, I say, Hey fellas, we haven't done, you've done some, uh, 200s and 300s on grass, and then everything else you've been doing have been 8 and 10 mile sub-thresholds, long runs, and everyone's volume is high. You're going to sea level. It's a flat, fast course. This is going to be a shock to the system. It's going to be, you're going to be like, whoa, what the hell just hit me? Uh, but get this. They go out in 433. My first two guys average 438. It was the fastest, 4.33, the first mile of the race was the fastest mile they had run since outdoor track the year before, and everyone was fine. Everyone mm. was fine. Everyone, like, the feedback, hey, was that a real shock to the system? No, not really. But everyone was fine. And it just leads me to my point. The biggest, I, I think the biggest flaw in our current system of coaching, over-prescription of speed endurance, over-prescription of VO2, over-prescription. We hadn't touched that stuff it, we had hit it from both ends. Yeah, we had done the neuromuscular. We had done the long aerobic. We hadn't touched VO2. Out in 433, average 438, hadn't run hadn't run a single mile that fast in five months, and everyone was fine. So I just hmm. think um, we are leaving a lot of races in training because we panic and we start assigning energy systems that um, – we don't maybe give full credence to their impact. They're tools, right? The different energy systems and applications and rehearsal of utilizing them are tools. And I think you're correct when you say over-prescription. I actually want to refine that and say uh, misprescription, because sure. you do need to to prescribe it for different athletes and different animals at different times of year, but we use it as this blunt instrument when it's actually a very refined, delicate tool. And so understand when you get to a level of competency where you understand the difference between it's not this blunt thing and we just do it because that's what everyone else does and we got to get on board or we're missing out. But you say there's a certain time and place for a certain chronological athlete training age and capability and chronological maturity of an athlete that this can be used more than than less or less than more, whatever, whatever. But you have to put a pin in when and where to use that tool. Yes, because great. it's a very valuable, very valuable tool. Sure, sure. But it's I, I you know, I want to unpack that a little bit more. Your interpretation because it is valuable about okay, they did things that you would consider from an energy system and uh, fueling and substrate standpoint at opposite ends of the spectrum. 
sure. this indirect exposure that got them to be able to race at, at what you perceived as and you you know going in as going to be a shock, but it was not a shock. So walk us a little bit more through your reflections and interpretation about the work you did leading up, and then what actually happened in reality, and how you are um, unpacking that, and how you are yeah. reconciling well, it. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in, like, you know, it, it just as a, as a fan of, of our sport and as someone that's, um, just uh, curious about how we prepare athletes, I'm, I'm interested in our evolution, um, and especially in my, in my cohort and NCAA coaches of, are we, are we better than 20 or 30 years ago about having people arrive where they're supposed to be on the right day? I'm, 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 I'm just curious about that. The plague that I often see, you're really good in September, where are you in November? And even if you, it's not saying you got worse, but are you just hanging on for dear life in November? Um, how many people will leave their college careers with this really memorable night in Palo Alto in March or April and failure to be at the NCAA meet, right? I mean, how many, I mean, it's, you know, you, you know, you, and I'm not just talking about uh, the fastest time they ran, you know, but, um, you know, they were actually ready to do. And so I'm really curious uh, about that. Dan, uh, I think, does a great job of explaining, you know, you've got these dials, intensity, density, um, volume, and not to turn too many, turn one, when mm -hmm. we're trying to aim for this peak. Um, but I'm really interested in how we have people arriving on November 18th in the right place. So that reflection, I think, is... Um, how can you be that ready on September 30th, right? Because the next thing to happen, if I just panic, it's like, you know, we got to be, you know, here we go. We got to be, we got to lower the volume and we got to get faster. And it's this stupid pyramid diamond thing that we, you know, that we came up with. And I just think um, it's not listening to the biology of what's in front of you. Is it really reading the athlete or is it following this plan that you made months ago in your head? I don't know. I mean, I, I, Steve, I think you have some good feedback on that. I, I'm really interested. But are we evolving? Are we getting better at this? Uh, um, my blunt answer would be probably no. Um, right. <laughs> right. But we have, but Steve, we have more information and numbers and data than ever before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that stuff doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, but, and, and without going too too far down a down a rabbit hole, I think you have to look at the models we use. Right. And you mentioned like these pyramid diamonds, like whatever model you want to subscribe to. And what we don't do is ask the question of how we got to this model and are those assumptions we're making to get to this model correct. Right. Mm. And if you look at modern periodization, a lot of times it's based on a lot of assumptions that we made at some point and no one stepped back and thought about it. And said, hey, you know, actuality, like, this isn't how the body biologically adapts, right? This isn't how the human brain and mind, like, process and handle things. And, and we're stuck with these old models of thinking. And, in fact, John Keeley, um, a researcher, wrote a really good article maybe a year ago on, on periodization and, like, how that evolved and how we got to where we have. And his big conclusion is like, this was based on a bunch of uh, a guesswork by 
you know, some random coaches, some scientists, some random dudes in Russia who were probably all doped up and on drugs. And like, you know, we came up with this thing that looks really well on paper, but doesn't really adhere to, you know, the principles of, of how we adapt that we know, you know, know occur. So I think it, it takes that step back as like we're using broken models and using those to create training systems and these great mapped out training plans that don't have a history of reality. But, but I think we, Oh, sorry, Steve. Yeah. One last point is I I think it comes down to this is our insecurity as a coach, just like we like elaborate racing plans. We also feel better when we map out elaborate training plans, right? And it makes mm-hmm. us feel secure in that we have some sort of certainty if they, we follow this training plan, then we're going to get this end result exactly. And what happens is that takes us out of this reading the person, coaching, like you said, Mike, and we stop looking at the individual in front of us and what data they're providing to us and instead look at this plan that we wrote down in a sheet and say the next step is this. Why is that the next step? Because that's the next step on the sheet. Right. I think we have a cognitive bias here. We think we're a lot more manicured and evolved <laughs> and refined than we really are. We're still in the wild, wild west, guys. I, I yeah. truly believe it. We're pioneering there's all this new feedback. We're talking about energy systems and substrates and this and that, but it's a small piece of the pie, and it's an ecosystem. We don't understand. They're not silos. They all kind of – it's like the ocean. All rivers run lead, or lead to the sea, and it's a big melting pot. But yet we want to minimize the um, confluence of all these factors. Why? Because we don't know. Because we don't know how to track. There's not enough data. There's not enough – And I'll say this, I think that whenever you're presented with challenges or constraints, like Mike has 7,000 feet of altitude to deal with, like that brings training constraints. But but what I'm sure you've seen is that's probably challenged some of your training ideology on like, oh, well, I can't do this as well or this exact workout, but you know what, that doesn't matter as much as I thought it was. And one of the things coaching in Houston you know, I was having a, a really good conversation with uh, the Rice women's cross-country coach, Jim Bevan, who's done a, a great job through the years. And we had this nice discussion on, on all that aerobic work you were talking about, is that we can't get that down here the way that every other team in the country has. I can't send anybody to do a 10-mile progression run in July, August, or September in Houston, sure. Texas. Right. Because you'll, you'll die. But, but what that, like, literally, but, but, or you'll run really slow and it's just horrible and painful to watch. But like what that's challenged is like, okay, like how do we get that same adaptation, that same stress in a different way than like the manuals or that my ideas on coaching, you know, and then Tasha Rogers in Denver, I'd have her do this, but I can't do that with Brian Barraza in Texas. Like, how do we do that? And I think sometimes those constraints free us from these like ideological models that we get stuck in. Uh, yeah. uh, well said, well said. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It, it's a uh, Mark Coogan. I, I was just at a conference with him uh, and he was, it, man, I, there was a comment he made once that something was really interesting. He's like, man, sometimes he, sometimes he likes when there's a snowstorm and they have to cancel a workout. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. it just, it throws you off of 
what you normally were going to do and breaks you, releases you from that, from that mindset. So I, Steve, that's, that's really well said. Mike, how are we doing on time with you? We're good. I, I, uh, I've got, I've got, okay. We're, uh, we're okay. Okay. A couple questions, you know, maybe these are a little bit more direct hits. Um, what books did you read when you were a beginning coach that really had a high impact? And also what are you reading now that, or recently that has, is having a high impact? From 2006 to uh, 2012, I worked with uh, most of that time in a 40 by 40 room with Dr. Jack Daniels. So first mm-hmm. book, Daniels Running Formula. Um, uh, yeah, that's the you know those as basic as it is. Uh, you know the, the, that's uh, those V dot charts or something I I referenced this morning on something. So um, yep, Daniels Running Formula. I uh, I've got uh, or, uh, used often uh, becoming a supple leper, which is Kelly Starrett, uh, um, and I found that was uh, helpful for just the some of the things I built into the program as far as um, uh, yeah, movement of the body before we send it out running. Um, yeah, the uh, the rest of those books I think would be non uh, <laughs> might not be your typical uh, yeah your, your your typical coaching books, but um, yeah, that's the point. I mean, just what had an impact? Yeah, the uh, you know I I think that's more and more of the um, yeah more and more what I'm what I'm drawn to. I, I had a um, really awesome book, um, Chris Edmonds, the Culture Engine. Um, which reinforced, uh, you know, some of those beliefs on um, how I'm how I'm dictating culture. Um, yeah, and then there's uh, there's some there's some literature I think that is uh, Jim Harrison's Legends of the Fall, uh, uh, Hemingway, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, I, I'm a fan of uh, a it's a it's a Buddhist author um, Pima Pima Chodron. Um, oh, yes, that's, yeah. uh, probably some of the way I speak to them is maybe, you know, right, right out of her. Um, there's a book on my desk right now, uh, comfortable with uncertainty, yes. yeah. uh, which I think, uh, leads a lot to some of the discussion, uh, some of the discussion that we have, but, um, I'm really interested in, uh, teaching them to find their own voice. And so uh, writing, I think that encourages that. I was an English major. Uh, writing that encourages that. Um, uh, finding yeah, finding who you are, finding that voice. I, and I think Flagstaff is a great platform for that. So um, yeah, always, always, always reading there, but um, maybe less and less books on running. Uh, maybe over your board. That's great that you say that. Um... Something that you had mentioned earlier in this interview was you get the athletes to verbalize in their own words um, what just happened, whether it's a workout or a race or what have you. That's really important to articulate that not only in a verbal construct, but also to articulate that by writing it down, as you know. So, I mean, is this a um, response to your upbringing as an English major or did you happen upon? And so the reality that once we articulate something, once we express it, we 
nine times out of ten, our first response is not a lie. It's not calculated. So in order to write it down, it has to become real. In order to be precise, you have to identify and you have to be able – and we know, right, from um, psychology that the act of saying it or the act of writing something down makes it more tangible and real. And it makes – if you're trying to change something or change a habit or create progress, you need to verbalize and articulate it. Is that something you just came about naturally or were there other types of influences that showed you the value of having athletes write things down, make it their own or articulate and verbalize what just happened in making it their own? Yeah, the, um, yeah, probably my background in, 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 in writing and reading, uh, reinforced that I knew it to be true. I think it's, you know, as you're saying, I knew that that's a, um, I, you know, I, I think as you're saying, John, I, I, um, in your work of writing things down, I, if I have a couple ideas, I'm going to go address the team with, I take the five minutes to make, to make, oftentimes it's bullet points, but it's, it's, I'm following a flow and man, I can't tell you how much better those discussions go. Um, cause again, we're, you know, the athletes we coach, they're, they're talked at all day long and, mm-hmm really making being cognizant of uh, the delivery of that. And I'm also, uh, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of quotations and, uh, and, but, but not like the, uh, picture of the Eagle soaring and it says perseverance underneath. You know, <laughs> but actually, uh, I think literature, uh, has just given us a, this amazing body of quotations to say in some other ways, what we, um, often are trying to say, you know, so many times. And so I will give them, I give them a lot of quotations. I give them a lot of, uh, yeah, just a lot of other people's words um, to express. Uh, I just gave Bukowski, Bukowski the other day, uh, and uh, there's a Murakami quote about the sandstorm that I use a lot in the beginning of the season. But it, I, I like some of these ways of saying things uh, that other authors mm. use. So. Um, but also, I think a huge piece is the. Uh, or the training logs we use, we use a shared Google document between myself and the athletes that uh, the research from the Hooper-McKinnon test, there's uh, 10 questions about sleep, stress, recovery. We chose five of them. We have mm-hmm. a drop-down menu for five of them. And we also leave a place for comments. And um, we store this data. So we actually have this long-running dialogue between coach and athletes. I've got you know people I've worked with for years that have – we got – five years of this dialogue, four years of a conversation that led up to this performance, which is telling us exactly where we are. And I think that's a, when we go back to culture or, or Steve asked about that coach athlete model, the first thing you try to create is safety to be exactly how you are, let them know that that's okay. So when they can actually write instead of like motivation is a really easy one to look at with athletes. Do you know how many professional athletes some days just aren't really motivated? Some days mm-hmm. like, man, I just got to head out the door and get this run in. When you tell college kids that, they're like, holy cow, I can't believe what? I thought Matt Sentowitz every day just jumped out of bed, couldn't wait to train. And when you let them know that, you know what, it's okay some days that this is just going to be work. I got to just get this run in, right? Um, when you release them of this pressure of having to be Superman or Superwoman to be bulletproof, uh, the first place that might happen is the writing. If I, if I stand in front and say, raise your hand, everyone wants to go to the Olympics. Oh, everyone's hand is up. I want to go to the Olympics, coach. Well, you know what? You come in the office and it's just one-on-one. How are you doing? You know, I'm struggling today. Hmm. Okay. 
Well, in the in the log, sometimes the log is the first place where it's safe because you're not around your peers, you're not even face to face with the coach. The log is the first place to tell me I'm having a hard time. This is supposed to be easy, but it's hard. I'm struggling. I, 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 it's hard. Whatever that might be, the log is a really safe place to start that with an athlete. And it doesn't mean it substitutes for the face-to-face human old-fashioned communication, but um, them writing that down. Uh, I had a kid who couldn't tell me face-to-face that he quit in the race a few weeks ago. In the log, that same hours later, he wrote to me, hey, I gave up 2K to go. I gave up. Hmm. He, just he just couldn't tell me that. He just couldn't say it. He could say it in the log. Well, now we got something to work on. And so I just think that, that man, logs are a really great opportunity to – and the log is not just I did – Eight times eight hundred with two minutes rest. The log is, this is where I am. This is how I'm feeling. This is where I'm at, and that to me is like the most valuable data. But it comes from writing it down. Mike, that's amazing. You are constantly nourishing these athletes. Like to me, that's the thing that's being expressed the most in this interview. Is it's a constant nourishment, mind, body, emotion, day in and day out. Like. If people are listening, that is the thing. It's this continual nourishment. I mean, but, but I want to tell you, want to tell you a really important moment in that, right? Because you can, uh, you can totally, they can grant you this vulnerability, and here's where you can go wrong, right? When they're telling you they're not bulletproof, when they're telling you, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, or I'm really scared. When I had someone come in and uh, tell me, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. In the log, they told me. I'm worried the team isn't going to be able to do this and it's going to be because of me. Mm. I mean, are you kidding me? That is like, talk about, that's a, you know, a 19 year old having to wrestle with that. The, the crucial moment is the handoff. Then the, the, the moment that coach has, is I've got to let them know that what they're feeling is okay. Not that they're not, not, and it's just, just you know, because you're working on years and years of whatever their history of guilt and shame is, that that's okay. Wherever they're at is okay. So I would just tell coaches, it's not just grant, it's not this nourishment that just grants you this access to their vulnerability, but right. you then have a responsibility to handle that just so delicately. And the moment right there, I think, is uh, if you get it right, you may open up the door to do that for the rest of your time coaching that athlete when they know it's safe to be exactly how they are on that day, right? And not to have to put this act of, I'm the most, you know, fearless, bulletproof, uh, you know, superhero to ever walk the earth. Um, you give them that safe moment. So I would just tell coaches, do not make a plan to access that vulnerability until you also have a plan on how you will handle that gently. Because well, you have to be off, tolerant of human failing. Like, yes, if you're yes. tolerant of human failing, which is, to fail is to be human. I mean, you're yes. tolerant of the the complete humanness. And yes. some days are going to be amazing and you're going to achieve. But most days it's just going to kind of be mediocre and you're going to get through it and you're going to fail. But that tolerance, Mike, gosh, such a gift. And I would just tell uh, to, to our professional athletes or people that could be, I would just tell this. Uh, hey, uh, I'm down in the trenches here with 18 to 22-year-olds. You know how you can help us? Show us when it's not perfect sometimes. Instead of yes. post, you know, the workouts where you lit the world on fire and you always have a, 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 a 10 pack for abs and you never are tired, show us sometimes what it's actually like when flow track's not there, when the alarm goes off in the dark, because that can help my kids. Because I, I know, you guys know, you guys work with those guys, you know it's really like that sometimes. 
my my young athletes need to see that they're oh you don't feel motivated some days guess what you're exactly you're fine you're totally where you're supposed to be oh you get a little nervous before the race uh you know what so does emma coburn i mean you know what i mean like i mean that's so i just would tell you know people out there let us see that that's what we want to see let us see it. it gives us permission to be there and coaches you can do that for other coaches too let us know sometimes when it's not oh, perfect Social media just gives us perfect all the time. Unfortunately, that's not what, what it's like. Well, it, well it perfection comes, is a fool's paradise. Let's just be real. It, and it comes full circle back to expectations, right? What what we've done is we've created this unrealistic expectation that everyone is motivated, everyone is driven, everyone is killing every workout. And we all know that's not reality. And, you know, what I've seen in trying to introduce some of my college athletes to professional athletes is a lot of times at first they see them as like almost like godlike figures that they can't connect with because they think like, oh, yes. this, this person is always on, they're always doing well, they never struggle. And like creating that human component and realizing that we're all humans and that we're all going to go through these like ups and downs and getting athletes, my college athletes, to realize that I think has been incredibly empowering because now – when the college athlete gets to that moment of like, oh man, I'm not motivated to, to get up and do this, or like this is a struggle, they don't feel guilt about not being the perfect athlete. Hmm. Yeah, the, uh, if, if y'all ever, uh, you know, the author Kenny Moore, his book Best Efforts. Uh, yes. He, you know, Kenny Moore was fourth in the marathon when shorter won. And uh, they talk about in the book. They talk about the day after, and he's jo- they're like limping, they're hobbling around the soccer field because they're all beat to hell from the, you know, from the from the race. And Shorter says, "Hey, all this time we were training, we uh, we idealized who the Olympic champion was." And then there's a pause, and then he says, "And then you found out it was only me." Right. And because they're, they're uh, you know, these guys are friends and they run. Yes. So, so Kenny Moore's like, this is just Frank Shorter. Like I like I've seen him like I, I've, I've seen him like totally blow up in workouts. I've seen him like, you know, like have a tough day. I've seen it. And then and they're laughing about this, that man, all this time we thought the Olympic champions. And then we found out it's only me, you know. And, <laughs> and so I think, you know, you guys, uh, you guys both have uh, just, you know, prestigious resumes of working with professionals. What would I'll ask you both this, and I know the answer is the same. And just to be brief, I'm going to answer it so for you. The number one thing you find, right? The regular, the regular people. Well, my kids don't know that. They don't know that. They think they think there's something different about them. You know, I've seen you both around professionals, and you're like look like the most unimpressed people, uh, you know. On and it's like they're regular people. You're not, you know. And and but you know what? My athletes don't know that. They think so. When my kids are tired. Well, my kids are unmotivated or my, you know, they think there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong. Right. Well, I like to say the professionals, any pro, no matter what, if you're a neuro brain surgeon, a, you know, uh, a world-class entrepreneurial or, you know, a politician of some type of repute who's trying to bring good into the world, they are regular people. And remember, human, to be human means it is, you make mistakes. That is human nature is to err and you make mistakes. Sure. However, we always must be empathetic to that. But they, the reason they're pros is they have exceptional moments. So they're humans that have vulnerability, who have bad days, who we have to say, hey, 
not today, call you know, call it quits. But they know they somehow have been able to consistently be a pro, show up, even when they don't feel like it, create exceptional. And that's the that is the real work of a pro. Not just like I'm talented, I made this out of nothing, I just came out of the womb like this. Like, no, no, no. I know how to show up and get it done, get yeah. the job done, no matter if I feel great or if I have a fever or if I'm, you know, almost sick or I'm on my period or whatever. I know how to show up and create exceptional. Sure. That is hard to do. Do not get me wrong. But the whole nurturing of that is, again, it's a mindfulness practice. Every single day I am you know, mindfully reinforcing that culture, that mindset, that reality of what it means to be a pro. What it does not, what a, being a pro does not mean, being a pro does not mean I have this huge contract from the sponsor. I am in this awesome, amazing training group with a bunch of people just by showing up and through, you know, dissemination, I'm going to you know, all of a sudden do amazing works. No, you have to do the hard emotional work day in and day out on the days, every day, you don't feel like it, that's in your best interest. And some days it might be, I want to work out, but I just told coach or we had a dialogue that the gas tank was empty. I said, no workout. And I had this, you know, on this Wednesday, Eleanor Fulton had a session planned for the track. She's like, she does her warm up, her activation goes, God, Jim, I just feel drained. I don't know why. I go, that's it. Just go for 10 minutes easy. No workout today. She's like, are you sure? Really? I want to. Nope. Oh, you're good. Like, We'll get it. We'll get another one down the road. It's not worth it trying to stress you out and creating a environment of distress because your gas tank's on empty. Sure. Just because your training doc, your plan, the pre-orchestrated, pre-ordained outline said today we do this. Forget it. And right. so it was a great exchange. She had the trust to communicate to that me, knowing I wouldn't jump down her throat and be like, oh, because I have a rule. I say we don't. I the way I like to understand people's zest appetite or energy level is i talk in a gas tank full half em, half empty or half full so if you say it's half empty you mean you're trending down you're downward trending if you're half full you're trending upward or empty so when you're the athletes know if they say i am half empty or too empty no forget it nothing we just go regenerate restore just mm-hmm. hang out mm-hmm. now i want the gas tank full and we everything we do is getting the gas tank full mm-hmm. or being in a position to see the gas tank being rising to full and so that to me is the clear cue and signal of are we ready or are we not ready we don't need a yeah. pulse i don't need this i don't need that i don't need these numbers i just need that feedback and if they can articulate that great and she was gas tank was empty forget it now i'm not doesn't ruin her training plan doesn't ruin all this periodization and Far from it. It actually makes her. It actually having the maturity to step back and take a um, and abort the session is probably going to make her better in the long run. Right, 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 right. Agreed. Totally agree on that. Steve, what about you? Agree, hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> Mike, another question before we're going to start wrapping up. Sure. Mentors. Who Who are your mentors? And what is the impact each one of those men and, and or women have on you? Yeah, thank, I, thanks for asking me that. I, uh, I, I wish I was asked this more often because I just often want to 
I want to give thanks. I want to give thanks to uh, people that have helped me. So if you'll allow me to mention them, I, I appreciate that. I, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so, man, I'm, I'm so fortunate. Um, I, yeah, first it would just be my college coach, Pat Henner. Um, just a tremendous, uh, mentor to me in running and in, in my life, um, encouraged me to get into college coaching, um, believed in me, taught me a lot. I use, I use things he says or lessons of, of his, uh, training philosophies of his daily in what I do. My college, uh, coaching cohort, um, which I would call, uh, Brandon Bonzi at Georgetown, Chris Miltenberg, Stanford, Ray Tracy at Providence, um, people that you can get on the phone with and say, hey, what are you doing with your guys? What would you do in this situation? Um, w- coaches are competitive, uh, but, man, if you can find allies in this, if you can find people that you can just really talk to that don't have some hidden agenda, man, I I would just tell coaches, allies in this are what what gets you through it. And so um, to those those people – um, next, I, I was about a year into college coaching and I was like, okay, I got to, there's some things that I, I just need to learn more about. And, um, in just a year, I, I got access to two guys, uh, Dan Path and then John Cook, um, and uh, it, the access was just unbelievable. It was amazing. And it just, I, here I am, I'm a year into this and I'm, I asked Dan Path if I could meet him in a Starbucks in Phoenix. And <laughs> there I am sitting there. It's like nine o'clock at night in the dark. And I'm sitting there with, with for hours with this guy. He'd been working since six o'clock in the morning. He had never met me. Um, and, and, and that moment on, it was, it was, I continued to, use him as a resource, but he pointed me to great resources. Same thing with John Cook. I, my mom, uh, in the wintertime stays about, uh, in Florida, about an hour from where John Cook and his wife are, you know, same thing. Never met him in, in, Hey, email John Cook. I've been coaching college for a year. Um, can you meet me at Starbucks and sitting yeah. there, uh, and him just, cracking the code on everything. I, every Christmas uh, for years since then, I meet this guy at Starbucks and, and we talk, you know, and I just, um, so I would say that those were the, like, those are some of the best coaches in America and they still met a guy that had never done anything at a Starbucks for no gain to them, didn't pay him, didn't anything, just wanted to help. And when I would thank Dan Path, he would say this to me. These men, a few words, he'd say, um, um, when I was young, oh man, I get choked up. I'm like getting choked up in fingers. But he said, he'd say, he said this to me several times. You know, I give him these like gushing thank yous. And all he would say is, when I was young, there were some people that really helped me. Mm-hmm. That's all he would say. And I, um, and I just think that's our duty as we gain knowledge and we gain experiences. Somewhere out there, there's someone just starting this. Someone out there, there's someone that's at their first NCAA meet trying to look like they know what they're doing. Someone out there has is, is, is has a talent, talented athlete that they're going to act confident, but deep down inside they're scared. Someone out there is like real just curious questions about how to do this. And I think our duty, instead of protecting and guarding and secret and no one can know what we do and ego is like, let's share this. Let's, let's help each other out. Let's converse. 
John, when you came to Flagstaff a few months ago, and I don't know if you remember, we had pizza and oh yeah, we're just bound. You just give me, I was, hey, give me some ideas on short a lactic speed. You know, just give me and not, you know, for no gain to you. You know, that kind of collaboration to me is a real bright spot in in a sport that has some kind of scary dark spots. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, when you ask me about mentors, I can't tell you about them without so all without mentioning. What our duty is to also be mentors to those that need mentoring mm-hmm. and to also tell you, uh, I think the great coaches always are students and they're always asking questions. Steve Magnus can write a book, but Steve Magnus still wakes up and says, there's something that I can learn from someone that's never written a book, from someone that's maybe younger than me or less experienced than me, right? And that's the way that um, I think we need to approach what we do and um, and so mentioning those mentors, I will also tell you that um, we also have a great duty uh, as mentors. Without a doubt. I think you put a pen in it. This is my last question, and Steve, I'll let you finish up with any more questions you might have on Mike. So you talk about continuous learning. What right now are you curious about? What are you learning about right now? Uh, just some real geeky things. I uh, just went to the uh, USOC's International Altitude Training Symposium in Colorado Springs, Wendy, Randy Wilbur, uh, Jim Stray Gunderson. Uh, I'm interested in how ferritin is stored, uh, what that ranges for year-round, not high-low athletes, but people that live here at altitude, what that is um, for uh, good red blood cell production. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in what Canova calls lactate shuttle. John, you know, I've talked about this. Just really simple on-off things because training at altitude, I'm having to do a lot more effort-based stuff, a lot of fart lick and things like that, but really subtle on-off uh, built into my training. Uh, Danny Mackey was just giving me some stuff he does with on-off strides. There's the old Oregon, I think, 40-30 workout. Uh, mm-hmm. But just some stuff at altitude up here that I can – uh, I can use how they can recover while still running threshold or sub threshold. Uh, and then lastly, I'm really interested in how uh, stress affects injury. And so emotional and mental stress, how if I'm having a hard time in school or with my boyfriend or girlfriend or how my stress and anxiety might actually lead to my tibia breaking and how those non-obvious stresses actually lead to physical stress. Those are the things I'm interested in right now. Mm, brilliant. Steve, you have any final questions for Mike before we wrap up? No final questions. I've actually got something here in a couple minutes. But um, on that last point, there's actually some interesting research um, by a friend of mine who's a strength coach and researcher at Missouri who tracked injuries and then stress, um, perceived stress from academic and social things um, and, and his football players. And there was a direct wow. correlation Said hmm. at, at periods of high academic stress, which they measured with tests and quizzes and stuff like that, um, injuries went up. And it, it was very interesting to see. So it's like, you know, just a, it, it's a real factor. And, you know, we could spend hours going on in that. But it's something that, again, as coaches, we tend to take care of what we can control, which is the running stress, right? But we right. often forget, especially in the collegiate environment, all these other things that are, are going on. Um, right. uh, well, I think, Mike, thank you. You're very generous with your time, very generous with your insight. I appreciate it. I mean, you just you gave me a lot 
to think about and go investigate myself. So I appreciate that. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Like to get you to pencil you in to come back on the pod after the NCAA championships, regardless of outcome in yeah. November, at the end of I, November. Are you in? Yeah, I'm in 100%. Yeah, we'll give you to reflect a little bit on, you know, kind of the full the full circle there. Yeah, love to do that. All right, and, we'll, and let's follow up on that idea because I know it's something you want to talk about, about lactate shuttle and or um, the stress response to high academic loads. And what I'm going to curious to be is your own little study about the stress loads going into championship meets and how if that does have an impact with your guys or not. Mm, you know, yeah. giving all that all, all the outside expectation, which I know you don't talk about the number one ranking, defending national champion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd be curious to see your thoughts regardless of outcome you know, what the process is and how you manage that or chose to manage that in the moment. So, yeah, 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 sure thing. That sounds so great. let's call this part one then of the part right. two series, part two in a month from now with coach Mike Smith of NAU. Thanks guys. And uh, thanks so much for uh, what y'all do with this podcast. It's uh, it's, it's been a blast to follow y'all in the progression of this thing. And thanks for just putting such great dialogue out there for, for fans of the sport. Thanks a lot, Our Mike. Pleasure. Appreciate Part it. Of the contribution. I know Steve got to go, but the plug for Peak Performance is always our sponsor. Get that book, Stephen Brad, holding it down. I know Mike's read it. I know I've read it. I know a lot of people have read it, but unfortunately, not enough. So, Amazon Peak Performance, get it while it's hot. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks. <laughs>